verses 12 to 20. So that's page, 100, that's page 927 of the English Bibles and page 1853 of the Chinese Bibles. So 1 Corinthians 6, starting at verse 12. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that the one who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. Hey, how are we? Good to see you all. If we haven't met, uh, James Lewis is my name. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, delighted again to be uh, preaching with you and uh, opening God's word with you. And I'd love for you to join with me in prayer and ask that God would use this time powerfully for his glory and our joy. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the evening that you've given to us and for the time we've had together already. We ask now that as we sit under your word, that you by your spirit would teach us and shape us, help us grow more into the peace and joy that only comes through Jesus. In whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we're in the uh, fourth and final week of our series, Risen. And if you've been with us throughout the series, you'll know that the reason we call it Risen is that Jesus is risen. He's alive now, he's ruling now, he's saving now, and he walks with us by his Spirit every day. And so in this series, we've been trying to push out and explore what that difference that makes to our daily lives. Uh, we've had kind of three examples. Two weeks ago was work, last week was friendship, and today is sexuality. Now, I reckon perhaps this is the hardest topic of them all, because we live in such a sexually drenched, sexually charged culture. Uh, you see it in the fact that uh, so many of our movies and TV shows have soft porn and sexual illusions all through them. It's in advertising because they say sex sells, right? It's in flirting in the office. It's sexting. It's virtual affairs in anonymous chat rooms. It's escaping into passionate romance novels. It's the free and easy access to porn online. It's the fact that so many of our youth will be exposed or already have been exposed to porn and offered sex at a far younger age than any generation before. I remember when I was a teenager, pornography was something that you bought from a newsagent and put a brown paper bag and tried to sneak home. Now it's all over the internet and it's free and easy. It's when you go for your university O week and in the pack uh, that you get, your welcome pack, is a whole bunch of condoms. Because the expectation now is that now you're at uni, you're going to be having lots of sex. For some of us, it's that our work colleagues use the, uh, the work conference or the business trip to have a quick fling. And it's in the fact that just as many Christian marriages will finish because of adultery as non-Christian marriages. They won't assume that just because you're in church, just because you're a Christian and you marry a Christian, that everything is fine and okay. We live in a sexually drenched, sexually charged culture. 
And because of that, some of us will be very confused about the whole issue. Some of us will feel enormous guilt for a sexual sin that we committed in the past. Some of us will feel paralyzed by what feels like an endless battle with pornography and fantasies. Some of us may be complacent or self-righteous because, well, we've never really struggled with this. Some of us will bear scars of things that happened to us. And some of us may just be frustrated that we're even talking about this rather than getting into a good exegetical sermon. And so what we need to do today is we need to clear away some of the clutter, some of the fog, so that we can see clearly how Jesus helps us. So here's the plan of where we're going tonight. We're going to clear away the fog by seeing God gives us a radical sexuality. And then we're going to look at two encouragements and, uh, of how Jesus helps us in this area. So first of all, clearing away the fog, God gives us a radical sexuality. Maybe a surprise to a few of you, certainly a surprise to many in our culture, that God invented sex. Sex is God's idea. God created sex. And so God says and thinks that sex is a wonderful thing. And so the Bible says that sex is a wonderful thing. You only have to read Song of Songs and Proverbs if you're in any doubt about that. And so uh, our sexuality is not something to be suppressed or afraid of because God has made us as sexual beings. Sexual desire is a good God-given desire. That's why in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Not flee from sex, but flee from sexual immorality. So to put that concretely, it's flee all, all kinds, all activities of sex that are outside of a marriage between a man and a woman. And, and then welcome sex in a marriage between a man and a woman. So why is this so important? Why, why does this matter? Because God cares about what you do with your body. We saw it in 1 Corinthians 6 before, and there's a, a lot in there. We're not going to go through it in detail. But the key thing to get our heads around is in the ancient world, they believed that our bodies were just a, a container, a bucket, a bag for our spirits, our souls. Um, it's kind of in the background in verse 13 when the Corinthians say to Paul, the apostle, um, food for the stomach and stomach for food and God will destroy them both. See, for them in the ancient world, salvation meant your spirit, your soul would escape your body. And, and so what you did with this physical body didn't really matter because it, you weren't going to take it with you. It's like you toss aside a bag, you don't need it anymore. And so they believed that sexual desire was like any other desire. What happens when you get hungry? You eat something. You get thirsty, you drink something. Sexually aroused, you have sex. That's how they saw it. And it's very much the view today, isn't it? That sex is seen as just like any other desire. There's no right and wrong with what you do. It's just sex. It doesn't matter. And so what the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 6 is so helpful for us because he not only pulls down a wrong view of sex, he actually shows us God's plan is so much better. Have a look, second half of verse 13. The body, your body, my body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Jesus thinks our bodies are important. They, they belong to him as the risen king of the universe, and he thinks that our bodies are important. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. So just as God raised Jesus physically, bodily from the dead, God will raise us physically, bodily from the dead. 
So, so think about this. We will take our physical bodies into eternity with us. Amazing to think about, isn't it? So what we do with our bodies matters now. And then Paul shows us just how radical God's plan for sexuality is. Verse 16. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, the two will become one flesh. Now, the little quote there, the two will become one flesh, is actually from Genesis 2. And Paul is reminding us there that God's plan from the beginning was that in marriage, husband and wife would have this one flesh relationship. And so one flesh there isn't talking about just physical connection, uh, physical bodies in sex. It's actually talking about a, a deep connection and closeness. It's more than just our physical bodies, flesh there. Because otherwise, Paul would be unnecessarily repetitive in that verse. He'd be saying, don't you know if you're physically united with someone, then you're physically united with someone. It's, it's just repetitive. No, flesh means more than physical body. It touches on, it, it reflects the reality that our bodies reflect who we are. The part of our whole person. And, and so then sex involves more than just physical contact. It involves our whole person psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, there is a deep vulnerability and self-giving involved in sex. So the nakedness and physical closeness reflects, meant to reflect, a deep personal oneness and openness. So do you see, God has this amazing plan that sex be for deep unity. It's not just sex. It's a deep personal psychological, emotional, spiritual connection and oneness between a husband and wife. And this is why, this is why God says, flee, run from sexual immorality. Because when you have sex without the commitment of marriage, when you give your body without giving yourself, when you give your body and try to hold on to your separation and independence from the other person, then what you're actually doing is damaging this wonderful intimacy-forming connection-building mechanism that God has given us. God has made sex for a deep unity. And then Paul does this amazing, surprising thing. Uh, having told us that sex is for this deep unity, he then says, well, actually, at the same time, God has made you for more than your sexuality. Uh, if you look over to 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 36. 1 Corinthians 7 is just a page over, I think. Verse 36 of chapter 7. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he is engaged to, and if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion, but has control over his own will, and has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Now, there's a lot of background in the conversation that's going on between Paul and the Corinthians there we won't get into, but the basic point is clear. Uh, married or single, great options, Paul says. Both excellent options. Now, in the ancient world, that was an outrageous, radical idea. Because in the ancient world, the whole idea that we have of me being an individual and you being an individual and us having our own identity and our own rights and our own freedoms, that, that was just not thought of in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you existed for the family, for the honor and success of your family. 
You couldn't have honor and success outside of your family, only for your family, within your family. And this is why widows in the ancient world were under so much pressure to remarry. They needed to keep contributing to the family. So much so, uh, listen to this, I read during the week that the Roman emperor Caesar Augustus passed a law that said if a widow was still unmarried after two years after her husband died, then she should be fined. She should be punished to make her remarry. And then the church came along and said, married, single, excellent options. Widows will take care of you. We'll look after you. We won't pressure you to remarry. It was radical. It was outrageous. It's very much today the same thing, isn't it? Like if you're older and you're still a virgin, our world thinks that's a little weird. It's the whole premise behind that movie, The 40-Year-Old Virgin, right? His friends say, oh, he's 40 and he's still a virgin. We need to help this guy. Like there's something wrong. We need to get him laid. See, our world says, if you go through life without sex, then somehow you're incomplete. You're not a full person. God says, I've made you for more than sexuality. Did you see God's plan for our sexuality is so radical? He's made us wonderfully sexual beings. He cares about what we do with our bodies. He's made sex for a deep closeness and unity. And he's made you for more than your sexuality. All right, well, that clears away some of the fog, I reckon. But I reckon it also raises a whole bunch of new questions for us, right? Um, Some of us will be worried that because of a past sexual sin, we have permanently damaged our sexuality. Some of us will feel trapped in this endless cycle of temptation and failure. And some of us will say, I just feel like I'm under attack all the time with temptation and I just need some help, uh, some encouragement. This is where Jesus gives us wonderful hope and power. And that's over in Romans 6 that we read before. So flick back to Romans 6 that we read. Uh, Now, again, a lot in this passage. I reckon you could preach easily 10 sermons on just what we read tonight. Uh, So we're not going to go into detail, but really helpful for us uh, to understand uh, that it's going to show us that we need to believe that Jesus has really set us free. And and so we need to see how wonderful verse 5 is, because verse 5 has this, uh, this brilliant, if this is true, then this will also be true, certainly. Like, do you see that verse 5? For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. Do you see how it's, if this is true, this is certainly true. Now, what does all that mean? What does it mean we'd be united in a death like his? Well, come back to verses 3 and 4. He tells us there. Well, don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we may too live a new life. Now, that's not saying that baptism is what saves you. Baptism is a symbol, a sign of what Jesus has already done for you. Um, It's a bit like a wedding ring. So here's my wedding ring. Uh, When Jane and I got married, and it's engraved on the inside, uh, the 5th of the 12th, 1998, so I don't forget our wedding anniversary every year. Brilliant. Um, I owe the guy who made the ring a a lot of thanks. Um, When we we got married, 1998, so 20 years at the end of this year, uh, we put on the... Thank you. Uh, Who's cheering there? Thank you. uh, We put on the wedding ring. It it didn't make us married. It was a a symbol, a, a sign of the love and the commitment and the promise we'd made to each other. 
And baptism is like that. It's a symbol. It's a sign of the love and the commitment and the, Jesus, the, the promise that Jesus has shown to you, made to you. See, when you became a Christian, you shared in the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. When he died on the cross, your sins died with him. But even more than that, and this is kind of the amazing thing I saw during the week, verse 6 and 7. For we know that our old self was crucified with him. So when Jesus was nailed up on the cross, our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Isn't that amazing? Because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. That's not saying you never sin again, that you're perfect. Uh, We only have to think back on what we did this week to know that's not true, right? No, it's saying that our old self died. The old self that was enslaved and owned and ruled by sin died. And we have a new master, a good and gracious king, Jesus, who doesn't enslave, who doesn't abuse, but he loves and serves and leads us. So if that's true of you, if you're a Christian here tonight, then second half of verse 5, you will, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. And you love that it says, we will certainly. Like, make sure you don't miss that. Put your finger on it in your Bible or your smart device. We will certainly also be united with him. It's not maybe. It's not, let's see how things work out. But it's certainly. There's no doubt. There's no uncertainty. If you are a Christian, you will share in a resurrection life like Jesus. So what does that mean now? How does that actually help us tomorrow, tonight? Well, a big part of it is that it means your sin doesn't define you. You are not your worst day. You are not your worst mistake. You are not the sexual sin that you committed. You are not permanently damaged by some sexual sin that you committed in the past. So if you're not those things, what are you? Well, if you're a Christian, you are a dearly loved child of God. You're forgiven. You're washed clean. You are holy and blameless in God's sight. You are redeemed. You are a new creation. Because the risen Jesus has set you free from the power of sin and death. And he promises you a glorious new future. Can I get an amen for that? Isn't that amazing? Like, we just kind of want that wash over as week on week. But that is amazing. But that is true if you're a believer. Okay, well, if that's true then, James, why do we find it so hard? Like, some of us keep stumbling back into sin and the same sin we keep battling with year on year and we we look back over the years and we think, I don't know if I've changed all that much in that time and why why do we find it so hard? If we're free, why do we find it so hard? I think it's because we still think like slaves. We're free, but we still think like slaves. One of my favorite movies of all time, and I reckon one of the greatest movies of all time, is The Shawshank Redemption. Who's seen this movie? Okay, there's a few gaps. So parents' permission, you need to go and um, rent that out. Or if you haven't seen it, go see it. It's a great movie. tells the story of uh, prison in the 1930s, I think, in the United States. Main character, Andrew Dupree. Um, but the character we're talking about tonight uh, on here on our right uh, it's played by Morgan Freeman. Uh, his name's Ellis, or nicknamed Red. And he is in jail because he committed a murder as an angry young man. And he spent 
pretty much his whole life in the prison system. Towards the end of the movie, he's released out into the community. Um, and he, he goes, and part of that prison release is um, he goes and works in a supermarket and he's packing people's bags. And there's this strange, strange scene where he keeps on asking his supervisor for permission to go to the toilet during the day. He says, boss, toilet break. Uh, and it's a really bizarre scene because you've got this grey-haired old man asking a pimply young adult for permission to go to the toilet. And his supervisor says, you don't need to keep asking. When you need to go to the toilet, just go. But you see, in the prison system, that was how it worked. You had to ask permission for everything. And he spent so long in the prison system, he can't break the habits. You see, he's free, he's paid his debt, he's a free man, and yet he still thinks like a prisoner, like a slave. And I think that is what happens to us. We've been set free, and yet we still think like slaves. We still keep trying to go back to the old self. We still let the old self, the, the, the old master of sin, run our lives and be our master and run the show. We forget that Jesus has set us free. We, we, we can't quite believe that Jesus really has set us free and given us this wonderful future. And so the first encouragement for us as we battle with sin and particularly with sexual sin tonight is Believe that Jesus really has set you free. Believe it. And then the second encouragement tells us what to do tomorrow, which is to grab hold of the new life Jesus has given us. It's there in verses 11 to 13 of Romans 6. Have a look down there with me. In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to Him as an instrument of righteousness. It's so helpful for us. Did you notice what's so helpful? It's not just get rid of these things and put off these things, but it's also take on a new life, start living a new way. And that is so important to get right. I remember when um, I'd not long been a Christian, I was at university, and I noticed a whole bunch of things needed to change in my life. I needed to stop drinking so much, stop swearing and telling crude jokes, stop getting angry at kind of ridiculous stuff and kind of raging about stuff. And, and so that was kind of just the top of the list, right? The really obvious things and all the other stuff uh, still to work on um, over time. But it, it, what, what happened is I began to feel like being a Christian was a very negative thing. You know, uh, a lot of things, don't do this, don't think about that, stop that, get away from that, don't be near that. And it felt very negative. And then I remember sitting in church one night. And I remember the building. I remember where I was sitting. I remember the lighting. I remember the preacher. And I remember the passage. And it was this passage. And the preacher opened up this part of the Bible for us. And he showed us. That when you become a Christian, it's not just put away a whole bunch of things, but take on the new life. Actively pursue the new life. It's so helpful, isn't it? Because if you're battling sexual sin, battling sexual temptation, you know how powerful and unrelenting it is. Like trying not to think about something, trying not to do something is so exhausting, isn't it? Like don't think about him or her in that way. Don't get on the computer when no one's home. 
Don't browse those sites. Don't type those words into your search engine. And all you can see and think about is what you can't do, what you shouldn't do, and actually what you don't really want to do. It's hard. But Jesus gives us a better way because you share in the benefits of Jesus' death and resurrection. And so God says, verse, second half of verse 13, offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. Actively, passionately pursue the new life of serving God, of using your body to serve God. So what about some examples? If you're married, bring the grace and power of Jesus into your bedroom. Bring forgiveness and selfless love of your spouse into your marriage bed. And as you do that, you'll begin to kill off the temptation of pornography and adultery. You will starve it. If you're a a teenager here, ask your parents or your youth leaders, how do I fight for a godly, rich sexuality? How do I fight for that? Because you know that our culture is going to send a whole bunch of other messages to you. It's constant, right? Constant. And so you need to to fight for, you need to pursue a a godly sexuality. Because the mistakes you make now can really damage you for a long time. They can be very painful. And so you need to pursue, be on the front foot, be proactive about pursuing a godly sexuality. And I know the youth uh, had this time on Friday night with uh, guys and girls separate and some teaching time there. And so that's a great time, a great open door uh, with your parents, with your youth leaders to keep talking about it. If you're single here tonight, will you be like the Apostle Paul who didn't see singleness as a burden but as an opportunity? Will you continue to be that wonderful encouragement to the rest of us? Will you model to us what it looks like to live for eternity where there will be no marriage but only perfect unity with God? Well, there's some examples, and we could kind of tease them out and some more practical tips and kind of work through that. But it struck me as I was preparing this week that actually all those examples, no matter how good they could be, aren't really going to help us unless our hearts and our minds and our bodies are already captured by Jesus. So as I was thinking about that, I remember this movie, Three Seasons. It's set in Vietnam after the Vietnam War and tells three, three stories, three seasons. And the second story uh, begins with a rickshaw driver called Hai. He's very poor, like he just kind of minimum wage, works, 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 lives in the slums. One day he meets uh, a young, beautiful prostitute named Lan. He picks her up from a hotel where she's finished with a client and he takes her back to the slum where she lives. And he falls in love with her. He's just captivated by her. Land's story is that she wants to sleep her way out of prostitution. She hates the life of poverty that she's in. And she thinks that if I work hard enough and I save enough money, then I can break free of that. And then I'll be able to enjoy and live in this luxury, wonderful world of the hotel where, where her clients are. Because she can go to the hotel and visit them there, but she can never stay the night. She always has to go back to the slums. And she longs to break free of that. But what happens is the more she pursues that, the more she works, the more enslaved and corrupted she becomes. 
Then one day, uh, High wins a rickshaw race and the prize money is so good that he could set him up for life. He could be free of that work and to start a better life. But he doesn't spend it on that. He blows all the money on one night in a luxury hotel with Lan. Now the audience, of course, are expecting this steamy sex scene because High is finally getting what he wanted. And that's what Lan's expecting. She comes to that hotel room, but when she gets there, he tells her that he doesn't want to sleep with her. He just wants to give her one good night's sleep in a luxury hotel. And all he asks of her is to watch her fall asleep that night. And that's what happens. In the morning, she wakes and he's gone. She tries to go back to her old dream, her old goal, her old life, but something's clicked inside her and she can't. Because in high, she's experienced a man who used his wealth not to use her, but to serve her. And that kind of self-sacrificing, self-giving generosity and love changes her. She's a different woman. And friends, we know that Jesus had all the power in the universe. And he used that power not to use and abuse, but to love and serve. He poured out his life on a cross and he rose from the dead, giving us a freedom and a victory. So, so are you like Lan? Has something clicked for you? Have you woken to that glorious new day? Because we have every power and every resource we need to live the new life for Jesus. Jesus has given us that, those resources, that power. And the only thing that holds us back is whether we really believe it. Whether we'll actually step out tomorrow in faith and live that new life. Right? Not just come on Sunday night and kind of pray and sing and, and nod, nod away and talk, but actually step out into the new day, into the new week, in the power and the freedom that Jesus gives. Are you like Len? Has something clicked for you? Have you woken to discover that glorious new day that Jesus has prepared for you? Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, we want to praise you for you are the risen king of the universe. And you have set us free from the power of sin and death and you guarantee us this glorious new future. And yet we want to confess that we struggle to believe this. We find ourselves like Ellis in Shawshank Redemption. We find ourselves still trying to live the old way, still enslaved. So will you help us to believe that you really have set us free? As you told us when you were on this earth, that the one whom the Son sets free is free indeed. And will you help us to grab hold of that freedom and live and walk this week and every week in the power and the freedom that you give? We ask this for your beautiful name. Amen.